This morning's passage comes from Acts chapter 2. I wrote the wrong numbers in the um, worship guide. We'll go from verses 1 to 21. And as we started last week, we're continuing our book, the series on the book of Acts. Um, last week, we talked about how this is volume two, that Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke, wrote volume one to Theophilus, and he's written this volume as well to Theophilus. And what he tells us in volume one is all that Jesus did. And we talked about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the fact of, of justification by faith and what it means to be washed in the blood of Christ. But also in Acts, now we come to what Jesus is continuing to do. And, and the idea being that Jesus didn't ascend, and now we're left alone as orphans, but he's actually present with us. And what we're going to see today is the arrival of the Holy Spirit who brings his presence right into our midst. So this is the, um, the passage that we're kind of at the end of Acts 1, right before this, is a passage where the, uh, the apostle Peter and the other apostles have gathered. Uh, 120 are there now gathering together in one place. They've cast lots and prayed, and they've chosen, uh, or God has chosen Matthias to be the 12th apostle in the place of Judas. And then now we're transitioning into Pentecost. So if you'll read with me, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwell now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But the others mocked, mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. We praise you, Father, that this day was ushered in over 2,000 years ago, and you continue through the presence of your Holy Spirit until Jesus returns to fulfill this prophecy, that those who call upon your name indeed are saved, O Lord. And Father, I pray as we gather here this morning with your Spirit promised to be present with us, let these words be clear. Help me not to uh, muddle what is very clear in this passage, but also help us to bring to clarity what might be difficult to understand, that we may better know you. Amen. I remember uh, finding out that one of my favorite books, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, started out as a radio program. I don't know if you knew that. C.S. Lewis would read those essays over the radio. In fact, he was the most, second most famous voice in London and in England during World War II because of these radio programs. But who was the most famous voice in London? Churchill. That's right. Winston Churchill, prime minister after Chamberlain, um, comes to power, and he is known as one of the greatest orators, really, of our modern era. And he would labor over his words. He actually had, apparently, a speech impediment at birth, but overcame that, studied rhetoric, and through his wisdom and knowledge became a source of comfort to all the people during the bombardments. As you know, Germany would send uh, enemy, whether it would be the bombers or zeppelins or whatever, to drop the bombs. It was his voice that gave them comfort and peace. I want to read a quote from one um, author. He says, Winston Churchill managed to combine the most magnificent use of English, usually short words, Anglo-Saxon words, Shakespearean, and also it was incredibly powerfully delivered. And he did it at a time when the world was in such peril from Nazism that every word mattered. We come to this passage in Acts, and we are told by Peter that, quoting from Joel, this is a time in human history where God is pouring out his spirit of peace and comfort. If you read all of Joel chapter 2, you'll notice that Joel is warning his people, God's people, you and I, of the calamity that did come to Israel and to Judea or years before this, uh, this outpouring, hundreds of years before But now, with all of the dispersion and all of the calamity, God is using his Holy Spirit to bring people together and speak peace and comfort and truth. And so as we move into Acts chapter 2, maybe you got my email this week, the the importance of tongues, the importance of the Holy Spirit, something that could become a difficult subject matter, let us know this. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God who brings peace and comfort through clarity. Really, he brings peace and comfort through the clarity of his scripture, of his work in our souls, of his, of his means of grace. So let's learn now from Acts 2, three things. His method, his message, and the miracle. Okay, let's start with this method. What's going on in Acts 2 with tongues? Um, here's the scene. <clears throat> it's Pentecost. That's 50, that word literally means 50 days after Passover, It's 50 days later, Jesus, after the Passover, was crucified, right? He died, he rose again three days later. He spent 40 days on earth in his risen body. And then at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, he gives final instructions and he ascends. And we talked about this last week. He ascends to his throne 
where he's governing his kingdom, which is everything, right? And he sends his Holy Spirit, and that's what we see here in Acts 2, to be his presence on earth in your souls and through you and I and through the witnesses. And so what we have are these, the, the, the Christians, not just the 12, but really the 120 gathered together. Most commentators believe it's the group where the Spirit pours out his presence on them. Now we start with wind, this, this crazy sound of wind. I don't, it doesn't say they felt wind, but it was a sound like mighty rushing wind. If you've ever been, you know, we're in Oklahoma, you're inside and you hear those gusts, that mighty rushing wind, it does draw your attention, right? And so crowds that were there for this pilgrimage for Pentecost from all over the known world are, are hearing this noise and they come to wherever the disciples were. We don't know. What we do know is they weren't in the temple and we know they probably weren't in the room they were in in chapter one. Archaeologists have found large mansion-like ruins right around the temple. They may have gathered in one of those waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. But when this wind noise came, the crowds came out and then there were these tongues of fire, right? So I can't even imagine what this must have looked like. But in the midst of all of this, there was chaos because all of these languages are just fluttering together and none of them can understand each other. And there's nobody to explain to them. There's no tour guide, you know, to tell them what's happening until the Holy Spirit settles on the disciples and 120 of them, again, some would argue just the 12, but most scholars would agree that all the disciples at the time received this gift, those that were followers of Christ, and they began to be able to speak in tongues. What is that? Here are your options. A couple of thoughts. One would be some sort of an angelic language. That is not what I think is happening here. The other option would be a language that you could understand, but it was like one language and everybody would just understand their own version of that. Does that make sense? So if I'm speaking one tongue, a Spanish speaker would hear their language, a Japanese speaker would hear his language, her language. That's not what most scholars believe. They believe each disciple had a particular language. And if you start to draw out what that would look like, each disciple gaining this language, they don't understand it. They, they're uttering it. The Spirit's giving them utterance. And they begin to speak it. would begin to then move into the crowds and you would find that the people who could speak your language would gravitate towards you and understand you. One commentator said, what you had was 120 preachers, 120 disciples going into people groups, speaking in their native tongue all the mighty works of God. How beautiful is that? When I was in Japan, uh, I did not speak Japanese, and I still don't. We lived there in 1998 before we had children. We traveled for the first part of our time there by train. And I remember standing at a train station waiting for my train, one of the most beautiful things about the Japanese people is they are on time. And I'm a, I'm a type A person, so there's never a late train. One day, it was a little late. And I mean, like, even just a few seconds late, there's a problem. After a few minutes, a Japanese voice came over the loudspeaker, which I cannot understand at all. I had no idea. And everybody that was standing with me just started walking away. And I'm just kind of like, I bet, what, what's going on? I felt like the biggest, I felt foreign. Like, you already feel foreign, but then you feel really foreign. Somebody lovingly walked up to me and in very broken English 
began to tell me what happened. Um, and it's, to hear my language at that moment, someone explaining to me why the train was stalled and how to get to a different line and how to get to where I'm going and walk me through my map, it felt very comforting in that moment. And so I want you to imagine these people who have come, devout Jews or proselytes, which means they've converted to Judaism, have come into the city of Jerusalem thinking they're going to celebrate a feast of harvest called Pentecost. And the God of the universe has come right up to their ear in their language and spoke to them about who he is, the mighty works of God. That's the method, the method of communication. Um, Many scholars have rightly noticed that this feels like a reversal of Babel. Right In Genesis, you have all the nations that are coming together. They speak, excuse me, the nation, they have one language, and they build this tower, but they're completely disconnected from God. They aren't listening to God's voice. They have no way to hear God. So they're just talking amongst themselves and building this tower so God confuses their language, right? And here we have, in the end days, the end times, God is bringing all the nations together and he's unconfusing their language. He's giving them clarity. He's giving us his word. We can read it in our own tongue and understand it. And his spirit illuminates the scripture to our souls. And this is his bringing the correction of the Tower of Babel. We were watching a video series in, in the adult Sunday school on where the Bible comes from. The video we watched last week interviewed several different scholars. One man, Al Mohler, just makes the simple point. We are made in the image of God. We are the only species who uses words. And God, he uses words. When he creates in Genesis 1, he's speaking words. Words are critical. Like, right? What am I doing? Like, this is like fish, water to fish. Like, words matter. But another great uh, writer in the modern era, Neil Postman, he wrote, he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he begins to examine the fact that words are losing their luster. It's almost like a reversal of Babel. We have too many words. Um, he, he contrasts 1984, a dystopian novel, with The Brave New World, whereas 1984, Big Brother is burning the words, burning the book. And, not, and Brave New World, it's just we've become so enamored by culture and everything else that the words lose their luster. And his point is, Television, this is long before the internet, has dumbed down our ability to hear and care about words. And modern communication, I mean, we can't get a video. Like, we can do videos on our new screen. Hit play. Buffering. Buffering, right? I remember when I first got here, the, the, the criticism is, Ryan, we need to work on the communication at Grace. Oh, we'll take care of that. I'm a communications major. I mean, graphic design major. Uh, we'll take care of that. It's been five years. We are awful. Can I hear an amen? But I want to say something. Don't be offended. It's your fault as much as it's our fault. Why? Because it's like, oh, I don't, I don't do Twitter. I don't do that. I don't do Facebook. Well, we have a website. I don't check out websites. So now that we have a website, maybe a Twitter account, two Facebook pages, we used to have this city. We have an email that goes out to people. We have all of these things. And what we find is we are a world that sort of picks and chooses how we want to hear information. And so we're doing a bad job of getting it out. I, mean, I think in like 1980, it was a phone call. 
You know, your phone rang and there's either a prayer request or just a reminder from somebody. I don't know. And now it's like, it's all there and we still can't quite get the communication down. And I think part of the reason is this. When we need to communicate, we really will lean in. When there's a real problem, like Nazi Germany, we'll turn the radio on. And what we see in Acts 2 is there's a real problem. Peter is telling us from Joel that the end times are here. That the battle that you're in is drawing to a close. And the wake-up call is to notice we are in a battle. And most of us wake up forgetting that. How many of us wake up thinking, we're in the end times? Like, I want a raise of hands. If you've woken up this week, raise your hand. If you woke up even one morning this week and thought, we're in the last days. I don't see one hand. Right? That's what the Bible teaches. We are in the last days. Right? From this moment until Jesus returns. Look at, if you, you can't look, well, you can look there. It's not on the screen behind me. See, back in the 80s, you'd have had a Bible in your lap. Uh, Acts 1, chapter 11, Jesus has ascended. And an angel says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. We find ourselves like the men of Galilee, just waiting around. And in the meantime, we'll live out our life. And what the scripture is teaching us with the spirit coming is we are actually part of bringing him back. We are part of the last days. We are part of his ruling and reigning in his universe. So the method then is he comes with clear language, bringing people together. But let's look at the the actual nature of the message. Verse 11 So just to kind of tell you what's happened, um, the 120 are beginning to speak the mighty works of God, and we see that in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. Um, One of the things that has happened, and I mentioned this last week, is we have become more confused by the Bible than any other culture, than any other time in modern history. And I I told you when I went to seminary, we had to take a Bible uh, entrance exam. They used to not even do. Now they do it. And they said every year people do worse and worse and worse. These are men and women saying, I want to go in and study ministry and study the scriptures and give my life to that who don't know their Bible. And here's one of my theories, and I'm not trying to attack anything, but oftentimes in modern teaching of the Bible, we teach something and then we just sprinkle verses right? And you hear so many sprinkled verses, it's confusing. I would like you to hear that this Bible is primarily a single story, right? It starts at creation. It moves to the fall. It has an entire arc of redemption to Jesus. And now we're longing for his return, the consummation. If you can remember creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, Bible story, it becomes clearer, If you can learn to understand sections of scripture largely, this is history, this is prophecy, this is wisdom literature, and you you plug it into those four, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, you begin to know more and more how the scripture operates. 
before you get into the details of the particular verses. If you study passages, right, I would encourage you, if you want to memorize scripture, maybe memorize more than one scripture, find out what passage it's in, what book it's in, who wrote that book, who wrote that letter, what was the context. It's not that hard, but so often we've been taught it in such a way that it's become very confusing. And so what we need to do when we come back to this this idea of this message is understanding the big picture. Augustine said this. He said, this is a quote, you can memorize, just listen to the quote and then I'll unpack it. The new and the old concealed, the old and the new revealed. So the idea, what Augustine's saying is, everything we learn about Jesus in the New Testament is in the Old Testament, but it looks concealed. Think about the road to Emmaus where Jesus explains the risen Lord tells the two disciples about himself from the Old Testament. It's there. But in the New Testament, the old is revealed. And what has the Old Testament been moving toward is this day where the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all of us, on all of the followers of Christ. Another uh, fascinating thing as you study this passage is how orderly God is. Um, Pentecost, a, a Jewish feast designed before the dispersion, which happens later, for Israel. It's a time for Israel to come together in the harvest 50 days after Passover. But something really bad happens. Israel is disobedient, and enemies come in and send them all over later the known world, which is where we have all these countries coming from. And yet, it it seems fascinating, they come back to Jerusalem where the temple is to worship God. That's not the way it was originally going to work, but they do. They come back, and it's in that moment when they've all come back. There's three pilgrim feasts a year. Pentecost is one of them. All of these people come back that are God-fearing, and that's where the Holy Spirit chooses to bring together all these people with clear speech and give the message of Jesus. It's interesting how, and I'm just kind of processing this this week about when you're out of town, have you ever gone on vacation and you're more susceptible? Like, hey, have you ever gone somewhere? So we want to live here. Have you ever done that? You go like, I bet you did that this week. No? Okay. The Larisons were in Puerto Vallarta. They don't want to live there. When I would grow up, we'd go to Colorado Every time we'd come back with, do you want to, let's figure out a way to move here. My mom or my family. That's what vacations do. We also know that when you're out of your own element, you might be more susceptible to truth. So when we were in Japan, you would, you would find out that the Japanese would take up to like eight years to believe in Christ. But some, some people would go to, go to America for one year, hang out in our group or some group like this, and become a Christian because they're away from the influence of home. And they're in, a, they're in an environment to hear the gospel. And so you have, in a way, with Pentecost, all of these people who have come, they can't quite understand each other. They, they're, they're in this Jerusalem situation. All of this is taking place, but they're hearing the clear presentation of the mighty works of God. And what are those mighty works? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God that he dies on a cross, and it just happened 50 days ago. We're going to learn next week that it was all of us that were involved mysteriously in 
that death. He rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, and now their chains have, been fall, they have fallen off. They are free. And I want to talk, take you to Joel where it says, In the last days it shall be that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. I, I, I have to confess, I've read that, and I'm like, when is that going to happen? What does that even mean? You are prophets. Right? The Reformation gave us the doctrine that um, all Christians are the priests, right? The priesthood of believers. We all know the song that he's made us kings and priests to God. Have you sang that song, anyone? We know that song. How many of you go around thinking, I'm a prophet? None of us want to be prophets because prophets get killed and it's not a fun place to be to have to tell the truth to people who don't want to hear it. And in our very passage, as these Galileans are going about speaking perfect dialect, they're being scolded. Aren't these Galileans? Like, aren't these stupid people from the north? Prophets, you get killed. Also, we find in verse 11 or verse 12 that a lot of it, it says, and all were amazed, but apparently not all, because some, verse 13, others, mocked them saying, they're filled with new wine. Now, some commentators are trying to study what new wine means. It just feels derogatory. Like, they're not only losers who drink, they're drinking new wine. Just go away. You're a prophet if you're in Christ. You bring the message of God to somebody every day. And you're going to also find that you're getting killed in that role. You're getting scoffed at. You're getting laughed at. You're getting derogatory. People are making derogatory comments to you. But yet the truth is this world is dying for interpreters. I was talking with Emily this week about this. You know, how can, this is a hard passage. And she's like, it just reminds me of when you need an interpreter. Like, if you go to a country and you need an interpreter, you're going to, like, like, tell them this, right? What do they say? Like, you're going to just cling to that interpreter. Where are the interpreters? Yesterday, we were watching college football. This commercial comes on. You see this commercial. There's an American, English-speaking person talking to a Swedish person through an interpreter saying, we want to, this merger has to happen. We really want to buy the company or something like that. And the interpreter's like, I got it. I've been working on my Danish or whatever the language. And he says, uh, they really want to hug. And, and the Swedish, I don't know, Danish, whatever the person is, he stands up, walks over, and gives the, the one who wants to make the deal a hug. And the interpreter goes, it's happening. Like, the deal's working. All it was was a hug. Are we falsely communicating God to people by our lives? Are we saying what we think is the gospel, but it's not the gospel? Are we trying to make people feel good rather than being prophets? When you get into broken relationships, when you get into sticky situations, are you saying the easy thing to get out of it? Or are you bringing Christ into the acre, into the world you're living in? Every one of you, is a, if you're in Christ, you're a disciple, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you are a prophet in your community. So let's now talk about the miracle that that brings. In verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the key verse, really, of this chapter, at the beginning part of this, of this miracle. And, and we're confused because oftentimes we think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for some people, right? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That means that you have all the benefits of Christ applied to you. You are a new creation, right? That you have all of the power that you need in God through Christ, through his spirit. And what we really have is not a lack of the Holy Spirit. We have a lack of faith. So what is then, as you read through Acts, all of these apparent future manifestations of the spirit? And Sinclair Ferguson really does a great job in his book on the Holy Spirit explaining how the Spirit comes in the phases we see in chapter one. It starts in Jerusalem. So it pours out the Holy Spirit. He pours out to that entire community that believe. Later, Sumerians hear the gospel for the first time. And freshly, the Holy Spirit pours out in that community. And eventually, chapter 10, the Gentiles believe, right? Cornelius and his household Peter goes, preaches the gospel, and freshly the Holy Spirit is there, and the Holy Spirit pours out to the ends of the earth. Are we living as spirit-filled Christians? In Galatians 2.20, Paul famously says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's his Holy Spirit. Actually living in you. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You are now in Christ. What does that mean? The Spirit dwells in you. Um, many commentators have noticed, and it's, I think it's somewhat apparent that we see here a re-emergence of Sinai. So the law comes at Sinai with wind and fire and similar manifestations. And the words of God, the law of Moses comes, the ten words But here we have what has been prophesied in so many other prophets that the law is written on your heart. And so the question is, do we see that law written on our heart and what does that mean? In Romans 8, Paul says this, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Here's the point. Shane, you said this earlier in our confession. It was so good. We, we live out of, here's the default of the human heart. We tend to live out of pride, competitiveness, the law of sin and death. How am I doing? How you feel you're doing in your life on a daily basis is primarily based, if we're not going to Scripture and feasting on the Spirit, applying freshly the blood of Christ, living out of that reality, then what we're doing is we're keeping a record somewhere in our soul. Am I measuring up? Do I have what I need? Right? What's my record look like? How do I, how do I come up? I mean, we went, should I do personal sins? We went to the Pioneer game the other night, just a base football game. And we're just enjoying the football game. And I went home, I said, I was comparing myself. You know, every time a couple would walk up the stairs that I knew, I just, I started realizing I'm sort of comparing myself 
to their lives. They look like they have it together. They're smiling. They have the pioneer shirt on. I don't have a pioneer. Like, I just started comparing myself. And thanks be to God that he's shown me my sin that I could go. I went home and said, Emily, like, that's envy. Like, I don't believe that I'm, my identity is in Christ. How often are we comparing ourselves to people? How often are we wondering, am I better than them? Do they like me? Have I hurt their feelings? How often are we living out of the law of sin and death? When Christ has said this, here's the miracle. My spirit is on you. The law has been written on your heart. It is finished. Now the law is beautiful. Now you walk by the spirit. So we don't go around proclaiming ourselves. What, what this passage teaches is, is we go around proclaiming Jesus. We don't go around saying, I'm a good person. Let me show you what I've been doing. We go saying, let me tell you about Jesus and what he's been doing. That is how we prophesy into people's lives. And we give them hope because Jesus has come to rescue us from the law of sin and death. I encourage you to read Romans 8. He, uh, he talks about the, the power of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives and that we have been set free from that law of sin and death. Now, what keeps us there? I think so often the only way we can live out of the flesh is to forget the war that's going on. And I think my, my application of this passage would be, do you believe the Bible, that the fall has happened, that Satan is trying to take you out, and that longing for Jesus one day, someday to return, or are we caught up like the men of Galilee, sort of looking off into space and just living out each day for ourselves? I want to just kind of come back to Churchill. There's a historian named Andrew Roberts who says this, the impact of his speeches cannot be underestimated. An awful lot of people thought that it was impossible to beat the Nazis. Yet Churchill, what he did, by constantly putting Britain's peril in the greater historical context of other times that Britain had nearly been invaded but had been ultimately successful, he managed to tell the British people that this could happen again. Do you hear that? He told them their story. Let me tell you your story. There have been many times where you and your ancestors were almost wiped out. There are many times where someone just like you just as depressed, more depressed, were saved. The Spirit gave them hope. When someone with your level of anxiety rested in Christ and the blood of Christ revealed to them that it's not about what they do or they don't do, but it's about what Jesus did. That's your story. So when you find yourself doubting and struggling, the Holy Spirit is saying, come back to the story. Come back to your story. Bring the reality of your daily life to the reality of the scriptures because the spirit is longing to bring that to you and revive you freshly. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you have brought us your scriptures. You have brought us Christ into our very soul. And we don't know what to do. If we really could catch a glimpse of that reality, we would cry out overjoyed. But Father, we find ourselves just, I think, unsure. And I pray that you would help us as Christians who are baptized by your spirit that is living and dwelling in you and dwelt by you. 
Let us be people who know that we're rescued. Let us be not only kings and priests to God, but let us be prophets going into the world around us, listening in, caring about the conversation, and bringing your truth where it heals. Lord, everyone I know and everyone my dear brothers and sisters here know need to be told about Jesus. We need to be told, Jesus, that you love us, that you've come to earth and you've rescued us and you've sent your spirit of adoption that we may cry out, Abba, Father, for your glory. Amen.